KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. A COVID vaccine for kids as young as six months may be just days away. I know that Rady Children's Hospital is getting prepared to set up their vaccine clinic starting next week. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Concerns about water safety may close South Bay beaches this summer. Started seeing closures all the way up to Coronado, and that's when I got really worried because I realized how pervasive this is going to be. San Diego County explores legal action against gun manufacturers, and a new exhibit at San Diego's African American Museum of Fine Art celebrates the Freedom Riders. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. The long wait for parents of very young children is almost over. An FDA advisory panel has given approval for COVID vaccines for kids aged six months to five years. The advisors found Moderna and Pfizer vaccines effective for this age group when administered in lower but multiple doses. Formal approval must be obtained from the CDC, which meets this weekend. White House officials say COVID vaccines for children six months to five years could be available as early as next week. Joining me is Dr. Mark Sawyer. He's an infectious disease specialist with Rady Children's Hospital and UC San Diego. Dr. Sawyer served on the FDA advisory panel that approved the COVID vaccines. And Dr. Sawyer, welcome back. It's great to join you. COVID vaccines for adults have been available for about a year and a half now. Why has it taken so long for vaccines to be approved for very young kids? Well, as I think most people know, COVID as a disease is generally less severe in children. And as a result, we had to be extra careful about the safety to make sure that the risk and benefit still suggested that going ahead with, with vaccine was a good idea. That, you know, and this is the way most vaccines are developed uh, that are given to both adults and kids. We start in adults and then move to children. So, so for both those reasons, it's taken this, one, this long. Will children as young as six months be getting the same vaccine that older children and adults receive? It's the same composition. The dose is lower, but it's exactly the same in every other way. So, and that is another thing that took some time was to find the right dose for the youngest age group. And how many shots will they need? Well, this is when it starts to get complicated. The Pfizer vaccine is going to be a three-shot regimen, and the Moderna vaccine is going to be a two-shot regimen, at least at the beginning. I do want people to know that Moderna is exploring whether a third dose will, will improve the immune response there. So they, they may both end up being three doses, but at the moment there's a difference between the two. And how far apart do those shots have to be delivered to kids? 
Well, for the first two doses, it's the same as it has been for older children and adults. So the Moderna vaccine is spaced apart by four weeks, and the Pfizer vaccine is spaced apart by three weeks for the first two doses. And then for Pfizer, the dose number three comes two months after the second dose. So it's, it's three weeks and then two months, and then you're done with the Pfizer series. Okay, rather complicated. Is, are, is there a concern that it's too complicated? I certainly have that concern. It's, it's, you need a scorecard to keep track of the dose and the interval and the, whether a third dose is needed or not. So, you know, COVID vaccines in general have become very complicated as we learn more about the vaccine and as new variants of, of SARS-CoV-2 emerge we're having to continuously adjust the vaccine schedule. So uh, I understand why people are sort of fed up with all the changes and the, and the rapid rapidity with which those changes are occurring, but it's the best we can do given the science we have. What is the data telling us about how effective the vaccines are in young children? Well, the, the vaccines were approved based on the fact that they generate a immune response that's equivalent or maybe even a little better than the immune response we saw in young adults. That's how the, the FDA went about deciding that the vaccine should be approved. So we are hoping and assuming that that means they will be as effective in children uh, as they are in adults, but there's not that much data yet until we start to use them widely in children. Then we'll really have an accurate assessment of exactly how effective they are. One of the points that we should make sure everyone thinks about here is there are different levels of effectiveness. You can have a vaccine that's effective at preventing all infection. That would be great, but that's not happening now in the Omicron era. People are still getting infected, but the important point for people to remember is even though they may be getting infected, once you're vaccinated, you're not going to get severe disease. You're not going to end up in the hospital or on a ventilator or dying from COVID. And that's the effectiveness that's the most important. What kinds of side effects have been reported? Very similar side effects to what we see in, in older children and adults. Sore arms, you may not feel great for a day or two after you're vaccinated. Young children have a little bit of fever associated with the vaccine. All of those are temporary short-term side effects. The good news is in the clinical trials, no cases of myocarditis have occurred in this young age group, which is something we did see in the adolescent age group. So I'm reassured that the safety profile is probably even better in younger children than it was in, uh, in adolescents and adults. Now the White House has said the vaccine could be available as soon as next week. Will the vaccines be available through a pediatrician or some other way? The vaccine is going to be available for pediatricians to order. I know that Rady Children's Hospital is getting prepared to set up their vaccine clinic starting next week. Public Health is also rolling out vaccine clinics, so it will be available in a number of places. It may even be available in some pharmacies, although not all pharmacies are going to be able to take the youngest age group simply because they're not used to dealing with that young population. Now, how do you see the ability to get kids this young vaccinated, changing life for families? 
Well, there's a number of important things that, that the vaccine's going to provide. There, there is a subset of parents who continue to be very concerned about COVID and COVID exposures, so much so that they've isolated their children from all of their regular activities. And this vaccine is going to provide reassurance to those parents that their children are protected from severe disease and, and hopefully will allow them to feel more comfortable starting to let their kids socialize in appropriate group settings. Uh, you know, there's another subset of parents who have uh, high-risk individuals in their larger family or household, and for them, this is gonna be beneficial so that we can minimize the exposure of those high-risk people to COVID in the household. You know, only about 30% of kids in America, 5 through 11, have gotten vaccinated so far, and they've been eligible to receive the vaccine since last year. Are you concerned that parents will be hesitant to get their very young children vaccinated? I'm sure there will be a subset of parents who hesitate and and want to wait uh, even longer to vaccinate. You know, the important points that I want those parents to think about as they make that decision is that Although COVID is generally not severe in young children, it can be severe. We've had, you know, dozens and dozens of children hospitalized here at Rady Children's Hospital. We've had children on ventilators. Nationally, hundreds of children have actually died of COVID, including children who do not have underlying health conditions. So, you know, it's not a totally benign disease in children. And you're weighing that against the vaccine risk and and your assessment of that. When I make that comparison, I come out in favor of the vaccine. That, in other words, the risk from the vaccine is lower than the risk of getting COVID. And I'm going to certainly recommend to my three grandchildren who are now going to be eligible to get vaccinated, that they get vaccinated as soon as possible. I've been speaking with Dr. Mark Sawyer. He's an infectious disease specialist with Rady Children's Hospital and UC San Diego. Dr. Sawyer, thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. Summer is just about here, but fun in the sun and on the sand could be cut short in Coronado and Imperial Beach. South Bay beaches have seen extensive closures since early May due to elevated water pollution levels. The closures came as the county implemented newer water testing technology meant to give faster and more accurate levels of water contamination. But the closures have many people in the South Bay worried that summer may not be coming at all this year. Here to tell us more about the situation is the mayor of Imperial Beach, Serge Dedina. Serge, welcome to Midday Edition. Thanks for having me. So the county moved to a new type of water testing early in May. How quickly did you see beach closures after that change? Literally immediately. And, you know, I went back and looked at the calendar. And by the first weekend, we started seeing closures all the way up to Coronado. And that's when I got really worried because I realized how pervasive this is going to be how extensive, but more importantly, I was seeing the disconnect between ocean conditions and closures, especially in Coronado, and wondering whether or not the test was as accurate as it should be. And that's when we started reaching out to the county and the city of Coronado, state parks, and the Navy to really raise the alarm about what would happen all summer. So are you concerned that the water may be more polluted than had been thought before? 
No, we look, we've always known there was a significant problem with what we call south swell and south wind pollution. This is not from the Tijuana River Valley. It's from what is discharged at Playa de Tijuana, more than likely illegally, as well as what's called San Antonio de los Buenos, about four and a half miles south of the border, where they're discharging anywhere from 30 to 50 million gallons of sewage a day. Scripps Institution of Oceanography, actually, they track that sewage and shows that it, it can reach Coronado as well. So we know what's out there. And we had a really comprehensive testing program, but this DNA testing obviously changed everything. Now, you note this new type of water testing does not happen for beaches in the city of San Diego, only for county beaches. That means the results in nearby beaches can be very different. Isn't that right? Yeah. And so, you know, I'm first like most surfers and then people who deal with this water quality issue as a professional sort of ocean conservationist, I'm obsessed with, first of all, uh, sources of pollution, uh, the testing, as well as sort of tracking ocean and, and surf conditions. And so what we've been seeing is we've been seeing the test results from the city of San Diego for the last three weeks have come up with our ocean conditions very clean, but our beaches in Coronado and Imperial Beach closed. And so that's when I think the alarm bells went off, just to make sure that the thresholds of standards are using for the county really do reflect if they're going to close the beach a public health threat, or maybe those thresholds need to be fine-tuned. That's why we reached out to the EPA and talked to the Martha Guzman, the head of EPA Region 9, last week about this. And I think they agreed that it was up to the county to get back to the EPA to talk about whether or not these thresholds need to be adjusted. It's my understanding there are other public health experts in San Diego, as well as other agencies, who agree with this approach that maybe we need to go back and reevaluate. That should have happened with the county from day one. That didn't happen. And to date, we still haven't had that meeting with the county. I think we're supposed to have it next week, but we're all city of Coronado, Imperial Beach, the Navy and California State Parks are raising questions about why didn't that discussion happen much, much earlier. So we have learned in COVID that closures are not a good thing. How are the beach closures impacting your community economically, tourism? You know, summer is coming. Yeah, well, let, let's just make clear about, we're talking 20% of the coastline in San Diego, over 12 miles of coastline. And any given weekend, you know, it's been June gloom, but recently we had summer-like summer conditions, sunny, hot conditions at the beach. There were tens of thousands of people at the Silver Strand, Imperial Beach, and Coronado, but they couldn't go in the water. And so this is going to have an impact on people all over the county, because when our beaches are closed, that means they're crowding more into Ocean Beach, Mission Beach, Pacific Beach, La Jolla, Del Mar, you name it, they'll be there. And so this is a crisis for all of San Diego County. It's a crisis for our cities, our residents, but anyone who loves a beautiful day at the beach. And we're talking about the most gorgeous coastline in San Diego from Coronado to IB. It's an absolutely amazing, pristine coast. It's marred by this pollution issue that the county needs to have been a lot more thoughtful and working with all of us who are affected before they made these decisions about closures uh, and, and refusing to communicate with us. I can vouch for Imperial Beach. They seem to have the most beautiful sunsets. Um, how are you handling the balance between public safety and making sure Imperial Beach has a vibrant summer season? Well, look, for, first of all, the, the most important thing is that our kids, our junior lifeguard program, uh, kids were able, thanks, thanks to the partnership with the California State Parks, are now working out and, and doing junior lifeguard program up at Silver Strand State Beach on the Bay side because that beach is closed right now as our Silver Strand junior guards. But um, the first thing that our city did was start pivoting to talking to the federal government. Uh, I just had a meeting with the ambassador of Mexico, the United States. We're meeting, we reached out to officials that work with the governor of Baja California to talk about the need for water reuse. Because 
This beach pollution crisis is caused by sewage that should be reused in agriculture and industry being discharged on the beach south of the border that's now causing our beaches to be to be closed. So there's a solution out there that the EPA wants to pursue, that the government of Mexico wants to pursue, the government of the United States wants to pursue, and, and Baja California wants to pursue. So we're trying to fast track that so we don't have this go on for years and years. So what have you heard from the county? Uh, you know, we haven't heard from the county. We, we thought we were, you know, I started looking at when I was reaching out to the county. I reached out to the county almost a month ago asking for us to meet, reach out to Coronado, reach out to state parks, we reach out to the Navy. Today, we still haven't heard back from the county, only that apparently their system's infallible. They will not change anything. It's the federal government's fault that if they need or has, we have to get permission from the federal government and that they're not willing to sit down in a meeting with the Navy, Coronado, state parks, and Imperial Beach, which is after 35 years of working with the county as a professional ocean conservationist and mayor, I've never heard of this type of thing happening. It's as if they don't want to be in the room with the stakeholders and just walk us through as equal partners in, 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 in explaining why this system is, is more effective or what we could do to fine tune it. So what happens now? What do you say to beachgoers? What we say to beachgoers is we're doing everything we can in Imperial Beach to, to, to stop the pollution sources, but also to make sure the county is listening to us and making sure that we're evaluating every aspect of this new testing system and that there may be a better way to evaluate this, especially on the lower ends of the scale, so that we understand if they're actually closing the beach under the threat or if these thresholds need to be fine-tuned if there really isn't a threat to public health. Because that's not clear to us yesterday, and I know Surfrider Foundation tweeted that as well, that there's a gray area here that we all need to, to evaluate, which is why the system isn't hasn't been implemented anywhere else in the country. So, Serge, water pollution issues are nothing new for Imperial Beach, and it's an issue you have been involved in for a long time, obviously. Over the past year or so, there have been announcements of major projects meant to address the problem of water sewage flows from Tijuana. Are you optimistic these plans will take shape and ultimately improve the water quality in the South Bay? Well, what's interesting is that we've already seen, because of the, the lawsuit we settled with the federal government, with the International Boundary and Water Commission, uh, and that was the city of Chula Vista, IB, Port, Surfrider in the state of California, the International Boundary and Water Commission in the Tijuana River Valley has already made significant changes on, on doing things that would stop sewage flows from reaching the beach. So that's a good thing. And what I told the EPA and the IBWC is, and, the, and the government of Baja California, we need to do the same things that we've done, stopping these canyon flows, looking at, at illegal discharges on the beaches from playas southward. So that, that kind of approach needs to be taken there. And, and what we've always said is little things can make a big difference in stopping these sewage flows and keeping our beaches open. So that sort of comprehensive approach uh, needs to be taken. And that's what should have been discussed by the county with their local stakeholders and the government of Baja California the minute they knew they were going to implement this, this new DNA testing model. And we apparently they knew that they were going to have we, we, our beaches would be closed potentially permanently. So it was really up to the county to alert to this issue and get us prepared. And they failed to do that. And so Imperial Beach uh, was glad, as usual, took the lead on this, but we need more help. And, and, and that's what has to happen now. I have been speaking with Imperial Beach Mayor Serge Dedina. Serge, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. 
Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez in for Jade Hindman. The Fat Leonard Navy bribery scandal is about to wrap up in San Diego. A partial verdict was reached today, but the jury has asked for more time and will come back next week. Even as this long legal battle comes to a close, KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh says the Navy has been slow to change despite the publicity. It was a corruption scandal of epic proportions. Malaysian defense contractor Leonard Francis used U.S. Navy officers to steer ships to his ports in the Western Pacific, greasing the wheels with gifts, sex workers, and lavish parties with scantily clad women. Vice Admiral Craig Fuller attended at least one party as a ship's captain. Senator Elizabeth Warren pressed him about it during a confirmation hearing in 2018. What do you say to women officers when they see that this is the kind of event you have attended? Senator, I have always had the utmost respect for all servicemen and women. The Navy cleared Fowler and other officers of wrongdoing. Francis pleaded guilty in 2015 to defrauding the Navy of at least $35 million. Dan Grazer is with the Project on Government Oversight. He says hundreds of officers watch Francis, widely known as Fat Leonard for his size, lay out the red carpet. It just became kind of the way business was done within the Seventh Fleet. You know, the longer it went on, the more people got involved in it and the more normalized that behavior became. And so we ended up with a massive scandal that we we have. Among the Navy officials on Francis's payrolls was an agent for the Navy's criminal service who pleaded guilty to taking bribes to keep Francis up to date on the Navy's own investigations. Still, Senator Warren's exchange is one of only a handful of times the so-called Fat Leonard cases come up on Capitol Hill during the decade-long probe. Again, Dan Grazer. And it's shocking how, how little people even today in Washington really even know about Fat Leonard. No, it rarely makes the news here. Once the scandal broke, the Navy took away some of the authority officers have to decide which ports to use. Though the Navy tightened up the paperwork, it hasn't taken a hard look at the underlying culture which allowed officers to condone the party atmosphere. Pauline Chanks Corinne teaches ethics at the Naval War College. It's not something, at least in my circles, that the Navy is talking a lot about, and so I'm not sure that we've learned the lessons or have thought about what this means for Navy culture. Francis was arrested in San Diego in 2013. But Pauline Shanks Corinne says the War College still hasn't incorporated a case study about the massive bribery scandal into its ethics curriculum. One senior leader said to me, listen, like, I know people who were involved. And I've heard from other senior leaders things like, well, I had a friend, a good friend whose career was ruined because of this. And people don't want to talk about it. When students talk about it in class, they talk about different spanks for different ranks. 
the notion that higher-ranking officers were treated differently. Ron Carr, a retired Navy captain, says the case cast a long shadow over everyone who served in the Pacific during the 2000s and early 2010s. It really has put mud uh, for all of us who were not involved with this because there's always that assumption that potentially maybe we just didn't get caught. Carr was a logistics officer on board the USS Blue Ridge. As the flagship for the U.S. Pacific Fleet, the Blue Ridge was at the center of the federal indictments. Given the size of the problem, Carr is disappointed that the Fat Leonard case didn't shine a brighter light on Navy corruption. I think the challenge uh, from a publicity point of view is that it just dragged out for so long. Here we are having this conversation when he was arrested nine years ago, and we're still having a trial today nine years later. I think it lost its, its bang. It lost its pop. Nearly a decade later, as the Fat Leonard case draws to a close, it's still unclear how much the scandal has changed Navy culture. Steve Walsh, KPBS News. Joining me is KPBS military and veterans reporter Steve Walsh. Steve, welcome. Hi, Maureen. To the point that the retired captain made, why has this case taken so long? It seems that, at least here in San Diego, we've been hearing about Fat Leonard for a very long time. Uh, well, you're not wrong. This has gone on for a very long time. Um, I think longer than the Navy really imagined that it would. Um, it's actually one reason why they used federal prosecutors, is they don't rotate in and out the way Navy prosecutors typically do, so they can stay on task, untangling all of these relationships. You know, keep in mind all this activity happened in the Western Pacific, not in the United States. And it was also really widespread. Hundreds of officers were looked at as part of this probe, so it takes a long time. You know, I think there was a feeling that a lot of these officers would end up just pleading guilty once they saw the evidence. That often happens in federal court, and many did. In fact, former Lieutenant Commander Steve Shedd and retired Captain Donald Hornbeck each pleaded guilty in the weeks leading up to this trial. So, um, you know, it has gone on for a very long time. And then COVID was baked into it, so that probably added a year or two to all of this. Basically, if I understand this correctly, the essence of the fraud Leonard Francis has pleaded guilty to is that when Navy ships were steered to ports run by Francis, he overcharged the Navy for services like security and trash removal, and he made millions from that. Is that right? Yeah, that's basically it. At one point, a logistics officer questioned why Francis's company was overcharging to remove more sewage than the ship could actually hold. You know, at one port visit by the USS Ronald Reagan, and this came out in court, it cost over a million dollars at a port controlled by Francis when it cost less than $350,000 elsewhere in the Pacific. And Francis was serving hundreds of Navy ships. You know, it does have to be pointed out that one reason why this kept going for so long is, by all accounts, Francis actually did a pretty good job. He provided the sort of services that the Navy needed while other smaller contractors faltered. And this latest trial is to determine if five high-ranking naval officers accepted a number of different kinds of bribes to steer ships to Leonard's ports. So to be clear, is this a military trial or are they in civilian court? This is all in federal court. You know, we know much less about how the cases that prosecutors relayed back to the Navy, how they were handled. We know there were two courts martials, I believe. Uh, Several officers were censured. But the main case was handled by prosecutors for the Southern District of California. 
And, you know, it's here because Francis was lured to San Diego by federal agents. They promised him meetings with top admirals to discuss future business with the U.S. and Navy. You know, Francis had a contact within the Navy's Criminal Investigative Service. You know, investigators knew there was there was a mole, so they put out uh, some info saying that they had closed all the investigations into Francis and his companies. Francis had uh, met many top admirals in the U.S. Navy. He had pictures with taken with Admiral Mike Mullen, who became chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So he felt very comfortable coming to San Diego, and that's where he was arrested, and that's why he's being tried here. You know, on the face of it, this doesn't sound like a terribly complicated case. You know, you have overcharging, you have bribes, but I know that it has been a very complicated case. And is that because there's allegedly been an elaborate effort to cover up this incident by the accused? Well, I mean, yes, there was a cover-up, but, you know, the complications really are in that there were so many different people involved. Now, you know, Francis did not hide his desire to make connections with top Navy officers. At one point, he had a party boat that pulled up next to the USS Blue Ridge while it was in port. Prosecutors had hundreds of pages of emails and other documents to go to. They had to determine who should be held criminally liable for their actions. You know, when the five Navy, uh, five men came to trial, there, there was a frantic effort to locate some of the sex workers in Manila. Now, you know, this is now conduct that happened 10 to 15 years ago. So no one was really eager to come to the U.S. Defense attorneys actually pushed the idea that offering uh, money for them to fly to San Diego and compensate them for lost wages was actually amounting to paying for their testimony. So, you know... Some of this is it's been going on for so long. Some of this is just the amount of documents out there. And some of it is just there are so many Navy officers caught up in this. Now, according to your report, there's been an effort to keep a lid on this scandal within the Navy itself. Why is this so embarrassing for the service? Well, it's either an overt effort or just an overall feeling that the Navy would like to move on. Some of this echoes the 1991 tailhook scandal where a number of naval aviators were sanctioned for harassing female pilots and subordinates at a convention. The women involved in Fat Leonard, they were people of color and they were not in the Navy. It seems like there, there should have been a very similar reckoning to tailhook, but that, you know, there really hasn't been as much of an outcry. Some of this may be just the, uh, the rather racist notion that this is just the way business is done in the Western Pacific. Officer promotions were held up. There was criticism that uh, the Navy was hamstrung by Fat Leonard, accusations that tragedies like the USS Fitzgerald and McCain crashes, and even the fire that destroyed the USS Bonham Richard in San Diego could have been avoided if just there was better leadership uh, who could have taken charge in these cases. But you can also make the case that the Fat Leonard scandal was just one more case of bad leadership in the U.S. Navy. I've been speaking with KPBS military and veterans reporter Steve Walsh. Steve, thank you. Thanks, Maureen. In the wake of constant mass shootings across the nation, the San Diego County Board of Supervisors took a critical vote earlier this week. The board voted to find policy recommendations that would allow the county to sue gun makers for deaths caused by their firearms. A divided board voted three to two after hearing impassioned public comments from people on both sides of the issue. Joining me now with more is KPBS North County multimedia producer Alex Nguyen. Alex, welcome. 
Thanks, MG. It's great to be here. Alex, tell us about these recommendations that the board voted for. Well, there are two prongs to this policy. The first is for the county's chief administrative officer, um, that's Helen Robbins Myers, to come up with a plan to get data from the sheriff's department and other law enforcement agencies in the county on gun seizures. Now, these are guns taken from people who shouldn't have them, such as uh, convicted felons. And then she will come back to the board of supervisors with options for suing gun makers. So in short, the policy allows the county to pursue litigations against gun makers, though it doesn't mean the county will start suing. So is there any kind of precedent for this, and how likely is it that the county will be able to actually hold gun manufacturers accountable? The precedent for this is Los Angeles. The city is suing gun, uh, ghost gun makers Polymer 80. Now, according to the LAPD, about 80, I'm sorry, about 40% of guns seized uh, were ghost guns. And these, these numbers are from uh, 2021, I believe. Uh, and for the LA Sheriff's Department, that number is about 50%. Now, ghost guns, for those who don't know, are guns that are 3D printed or assembled from plastic kits designed to be untraceable. And of course, according to the ATF, that's the Alcohol, uh, Tobacco, and Firearms Explosives Bureau, Polymer's 80s kits, including non-assembled parts, are considered firearms. So they are subject to federal gun laws uh, regulations, such as uh, background checks. Now, LA is suing Polymer 80 because the city says the company is skirting California's law by not conducting background checks and by selling kits without serial numbers. So you can see the parallels from the policy that was passed uh, by the county Tuesday to what happened in L.A. Now, as for how likely the county will hold gun makers accountable, it all depends on the legal strategies the county lawyers uh, will come up with. The county could either join other jurisdictions in suing gun makers like Los Angeles or shared resources and I'm sorry, and share resources with um, other jurisdictions or they can go after gun makers in separate suits. Uh, but one thing for sure, though, uh, one legal expert told me gun makers are not known to back down from legal fights. So either way, it will be a long and expensive fight. Alex, the vote was split three to two. Who voted against and what was their reasoning? Both Jim Desmond and Joel Anderson voted against the policy. Now, both say they are in, uh, both say they are in support of uh, stemming gun violence. But Desmond said the root cause of mass shootings is mental health. He wants the county to focus on mental, on more mental health care and enforcing existing gun laws. Now, it's important to note that the majority of gun violence is not committed by people with mental illness. Uh, people with mental illness are more likely to self-harm than harm others. What did supervisors in favor of the measure have to say? So Supervisor Nathan Fletcher and Tara Lawson-Rimmer were the two who pushed for this policy. Before the vote, Fletcher said in Calif- uh, that California gun laws, which are among the toughest in the nation, they do work. And the proof of this is that California has the seventh lowest gun deaths in the nation. He says this policy would put pressure on gun makers to be more responsible. The sentiment that gun makers shouldn't sit idly by while mass shootings continue to be a public health crisis is also shared by Lawson Reamer. She said that it's time the county hold gun makers accountable for evading laws and marketing their products to children. Of course, she is referring to Illinois-based uh, We One Tacticals uh, JR-15 or Junior-15. The company says in their own marketing that it is designed to be a smaller, safer, and lighter version of the AR-15, just like, quote, mom and dad's gun. 
And of course, the gun has a skull and crossbones with a pacifier on it. And if you remember back in February, Governor Newsom called uh, the Junior 15 vile. So speaking of children, there were students who spoke in favor of the measure. What did they have to say? So when Fletcher and Lawson Reamer held a press conference uh, the day before the vote, they brought two students who urged the passage of the policy. Uh, One student, uh, Lucy Young, told me that when she started high school, her family sat her down with her older brother to come up with an evacuation plan should a school shooting happen. She said that shouldn't be the norm. She shouldn't be afraid to go to school. Uh, The other student, um, Talia Fish, says that, you know, she is afraid of going to malls, going to schools, going to shopping, shopping centers, grocery stores, and be shot at. So both says this is not the norm. This shouldn't be the norm and that it's time that lawmakers and voters put an end to gun violence and stand up to gun makers. Gun owners, of course, are on the other side of this debate. What was their reaction to the vote? Well, they're certainly not happy about it. The chairman of the San Diego County Gun Owners PAC, uh, Michael Schwartz, told me that it's akin to suing car makers for drunken driving. He says the policy does not pass the sniff test and would be struck down by the court. Alex, so what's next now that this measure has been passed? Uh, Next for this measure is that the county's chief administrative officer, Helen Robbins-Myers, to come back to the board with her recommendations, and we will see uh, from there. And, you know, this wouldn't be like something that happens next month. It could be six months down the road because she still has to come with that plan to gather data from the sheriff's department and other law enforcement agencies and then come up with a legal strategy. I've been speaking to KPBS North County multimedia producer Alex Nguyen. Alex, thanks for talking with us. It's great to be here. Since the closure of the San Onofre power plant in 2012, the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant has been the only active nuclear plant in California and the state's single largest source of electricity. It's been set for decommissioning over the next three years, but recently, Governor Newsom has discussed delaying its closure to help offset possible energy shortages predicted in the next few years. For the California Report, Benjamin Perper looked in on multiple gatherings this week to shed light on the range of views on the closure. The American Nuclear Society gathered in Anaheim on Monday morning to show support for Diablo Canyon's continued operation. The organization's president, Steve Nesbitt, directed the crowd for a photo op as they held signs saying, keep Diablo Canyon running and nuclear energy equals clean energy. What I think we want to do is to get folks to sort of line up. And the plant is the largest source of carbon-free energy in California, accounting for about 9% of the state's total energy portfolio. Nesbitt says because of that and anticipated energy shortages, his group feels utility PG&E's planned decommissioning would come way too soon. We can't predict the future, but I do know this, based on what we know today, in 2024 and 2025, shutting down Diablo Canyon is a really, really bad idea. Nesbitt acknowledges Diablo Canyon may not need to stay open in the very long term, as there are environmental impacts associated with things like disposing of spent nuclear fuel. Eventually, he says other energy sources like solar and wind will take over Diablo's energy output, but that will take some time. All these things are there in the future, but for now, it's essential we keep our plants running for a while. 
But in a Wednesday Zoom panel, the San Luis Obispo group Mothers for Peace convened to discuss their safety concerns around the plant. They also worry the plant is crowding out other renewable energy sources that could be cheaper if nuclear wasn't there. Organizations like the American Nuclear Society point to federal and independent evaluations showing the plant is safe from things like earthquakes, tsunamis, and floods. But Linda Seeley with Slow Mothers for Peace doesn't trust that, given the plant's decades of operation. It's like a huge ball of accumulating terror for us here who live near Diablo Canyon. Heather Hoff is with a different Slow County nuclear activism group, Mothers for Nuclear. She's a Diablo Canyon employee in charge of the plan's emergency operating procedures. And while she made clear she wasn't speaking on behalf of PG&E, she does want to reassure people about the plant's safety. There's a lot of things that sound scary about nuclear. You know, the public hears these words and they're scared. So how do we combat that? With Governor Newsom's request for federal funds for Diablo Canyon still in process, it's not clear yet if decommissioning could be delayed. But with California aiming for net zero emissions by 2045, the plant's fate will play a major part in the state's energy future. That was Benjamin Perper reporting for the California Report. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm M.G. Perez with Maureen Cavanaugh. Sunday is Juneteenth, the commemoration of the emancipation of enslaved African Americans. The federal holiday follows on Monday, and on the eve of the historic holiday, there is a new exhibit presented by the San Diego African American Museum of Fine Art at the Courtyard. The exhibit marks the 60th anniversary of the Freedom Riders, a group of activists who took bus trips across the South to protest segregation laws. The Buses Are Coming opens today and includes historic photographs, interactive interviews, and live musical performances. Joining me now to tell us more is the museum's executive director, Gaidi Finney. Gaidi, welcome to Midday. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate you doing this for us. This is an important exhibit for us. Thank you so much. Take us back in history. Who were the Freedom Riders, and what did they accomplish in the Civil Rights Movement? The Freedom Riders were people that felt it necessary to challenge the segregation that was happening in the South because the uh, Congress had passed the um, law making it illegal to have separate and equal places in the bus stops and the airports. And in the South, they didn't do it. They just left them like that and let people just segregate it. And so the people of the Freedom Riders, it was organized by the Congress of Racial Equality to have people go down there and they trained them in nonviolent protest. The first 13 of them went down there traveling from D.C. uh, going to New Orleans. But when they got to Anniston in Alabama, the Ku Klux Klan, the FBI and the governor all said you have 15 minutes to kill, maim, hurt, whatever you want to do to those people. And nobody will stop you. 
So they did. They beat him up, firebombed the bus and all that. And then when these people got out of the hospital, they decided to keep going. Not only did they decide to keep going, but they had other people coming down behind them. Right. So this was a very, very dangerous thing for people to do. They risked their lives. They signed their last will and testament before they went down there. They thought they might be killed, but they went anyway to make these changes. And what happened was as the buses kept coming, there were some 300 or so people came down on these buses from May through September and they put them in jail in Parchment Prison in Mississippi, one of the worst prisons in the world. And when they got there, before they put them in prison, they took mugshots. And the mugshots are the basis for this exhibit. So all 300 or so mugshots are in the exhibit. And we surrounded the exhibit with actual other images from the era. When you think about the war that's going on now in the Ukraine, for instance, and those people who are expats going back to fight and risk their lives, it's very similar. In other words, it's not a war, but these people went there risking their lives to be maimed, hurt, or killed to make a change in the United States. And they were successful. To follow in that thought, you have said that in a way, the writers were like the diverse protesters who took to the streets uh, back in 2020. How so? History sometimes repeats itself, and you need to know your history, right? So the, during the Black Lives Movement, during COVID, you think about that. These people during COVID, they got in crowds of people and protested right during COVID when they could actually have been killed by COVID. It's similar in that they said enough is enough. And they were all 25, you know, at the average age, 21 to 25 in 1961. They were young people from all over the United States, from New York, from Connecticut, Minnesota, California, everywhere, going down there to make a change. And yes, they were like the people in 2020 when they were protesting George Floyd and all that. And so this happened way before. And it's really, I feel these are teachable moments for all people involved to understand when there are things that happen that you just have to do something about to make a change. So tell us about the exhibit. What can visitors expect? So when we started working on the exhibit, we wanted to find a San Diego connection. And oddly enough, the civil rights, the Freedom Writers, the musical that was been produced on Broadway was written and produced by two San Diegans. And so we had a uh, CD release party and they asked us to help with that back in, uh, I think it was December, early December. And it was so powerful. Everybody who was at that release were riveted. They didn't move out of their seats. It was amazing to see people just riveted to the screen and listening to this musical. Well, at the end of that release party, the two guys from San Diego who produced the video asked if they could open our exhibit with the musical. And I said, yes, let's do that. And whatever it costs, we'll figure it out. So we raised the money to bring them here. So at the opening of our exhibit, the Freedom Writers, the musical will be here and done at the exhibit at the courtyard. This is really living history. You mentioned that some of the actual Freedom Writers will be there. How did you get them together for the exhibit? The 60th anniversary of the Freedom Writers would have been last year in 2021. And as we tried to work, as we worked on our project, I also contacted the Freedom Writers Museum in Mississippi, the New York contingent who was putting together the national exhibit of the Freedom Writers, Lou Zuckman. And I started to touch base with all of them. And lo and behold, because of COVID, they decided not to have the big exhibit in New York. And I said to them, why don't we have it here in San Diego? And their, their answer was, sure, we will come. And then I started contacting, because they had a big list of all the people that are alive. Remember now, they were 25 
years old, potentially, in 1961. So there are not a lot of the Freedom Riders left. I think there's some 60 left. Many of them uh, cannot travel, but we were able to get around seven of them to come here because, you know, they don't see each other that often either. And I doubt there'll be another celebration in 10 years. So this might be the last time of our big celebration of its kind for the um, Freedom Riders. But I just asked them individually if they could come. And some said yes, and some said they couldn't. But we got a few, and we interviewed quite a few as well. Would you say the Freedom Riders set an example in how to deal with our current climate of racial discrimination and social injustice? It's a teachable moment time that we have. We have to have teachable moments with what's going on. And that, I think, is where the connection is. I mean, nonviolence as a means of protest, you know, from Gandhi on has been successful in the 60s. But in the 80s and 90s, a lot of people didn't want to go that route. Still, the idea of protest to make the change is still in place. You see it with the abortion rights people now. You see it in other areas of our lives. So protesting for the wrongs in the world is something that connects all of us. And so I think that's the connection. The buses are coming has a connotation that maybe help is on the way. Will this exhibit help educate us and entertain us? Yeah, it should do both. I mean, this this idea of the buses are coming and what would you ride for is the question that we pose. And so the answer is there could be something in your life, in your lifetime, whether young uh, people who may face something in the future or old people who remember what has, has happened in the past. It might be a time where you want to ride for something. And so we ask that question as part of the exhibit. And it is going to, I hopefully, people will respond to that question in whatever way that they want and understand, yes, there could be times when we'll need you to potentially ride a bus or protest or something. What would you ride for today? I've been speaking with Gaidi Finney, Executive Director of the San Diego African American Museum of Fine Art. Gaidi, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.